The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my Time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. There are a whole lot of people out there in politics and in the media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. So in the numbers this week, 12%, that's the drop in Obamacare enrollments from, for 2019 from this time a year ago. 95%, that's the amount of the oldest and thickest ice in the Arctic region that has disappeared since 1985, so in the last 34 years. 95% of that ice has, has disappeared, according to NOAA, the National Oceanographic Administration, uh, who released a report last week. One and a half million children are homeless on any given day in the United States, sometimes with both parents, but often with only one. Two terms the limit Nancy Pelosi is imposing on herself to hold the speaker's gavel one more time. And 62%, that's the number of people polled who feel that Donald Trump is not telling us everything he knows about Russia. And let's talk for just a minute about the drop in Obamacare. Forget the court ruling in Texas last week that ruled the entire law was unconstitutional because of the removal of the mandate during the tax bill last year. It wasn't really removed. It was that the penalty was reduced to zero. So, um, you know, the box still exists on the form. There's just no um, monetary penalty associated with it. But if we talk about the fact that at the end of enrollment yesterday, that enrollments had dropped by 12%, is that good news or is that bad news? Well, it depends on what you think is driving the decline in enrollment. Of course, ending the mandate uh, that forced young people who always think, you know, remember when you were 25, you thought you were invincible, didn't you? Um, So those people are no longer forced to have insurance. 
So that's one reason you would see some decline. And allowing alternatives to be offered that provide less coverage but that also cost less has probably also taken some people out of the Obamacare exchange market. If you are a 40-year-old single woman, for example, do you need maternity coverage? Eh, probably not. And increased employment. I think a big part of the decrease in the decline in enrollments in Obamacare during the open enrollment period is the extremely good news we have seen this year on the unemployment front. That means there are more people in the labor market, and that means more employer-based insurance coverage and fewer people depending on either Obamacare or Medicaid. There are also some negative forces at work. Fear among the undocumented immigrant community has led some of them not to enroll their eligible American-born. We just heard about birthright citizenship. American-born children in programs like CHIP, you know, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and other government health care programs and food stamp programs. In fact, the $957 billion farm bill just passed. 80% of that is for food stamps and um, other supplemental nutrition programs for um, um, pregnant women and young children. 80% of that $950 billion goes to nutrition programs in this country. So um, I think that's a good thing, but I just pointed out because um, it is one of the negative forces that we see, continuing income inequality and poverty um, among uh, families. So another reason that we're seeing a decline in enrollment in Obamacare is that there are a lot of people who are caught in the middle. Those are people who have too much income to qualify for subsidies on the exchange that reduce their monthly premiums, okay, but are unable to afford Obamacare and, and the related premiums without that help. If you have a couple of kids and you make $100,000, you cannot pay twelve dollars or $1,400 a month for health insurance because you are too um, affluent under the Obamacare rules. But the reality is you have to keep a roof over your head and food in your children's mouths. And so as one mother in a a newspaper article I read this week said, um, every time my child goes to play soccer, I pray. So um, I think that's a fundamental problem uh, in what Obamacare did to the distribution of expense um, to middle-class families uh, in terms of health insurance. What's the answer? Well, Congress... I don't want to hear any more about pre-existing conditions, being covered, not being covered, et cetera. That, folks, is a canard. It only applies to people on the exchange. It may apply to some of these private policies as well. And yeah, the insurance company, it's a racket. If you have allergies, if you, if you blow your nose in the springtime, that's a pre-existing condition. And that shouldn't be. But here's the good news. If you have employer-based insurance, unless you've had a break in insurance of more than 60 days, you are covered at the group insurance rate. That's the good news. The bad news is that because of the 
um, private market expansion, et cetera, and the fact that you have all of these um, people, older, sicker people buying into Obamacare at the same rate as younger, healthier people, that has meant an increase in insurance rates for everybody. And employers have pulled back. So there's more of a burden on the middle class. And that's the point that Congress needs to get at. Healthcare in this country costs too much. And the outcomes are no better. And so why is that? Well, that's because everybody's getting their palm greased. And the number one lobbying organization in the United States, the people who give the most money to the most politicians, are lobbyists for the healthcare industry. So what should we do? How do we cover pre-existing conditions for those who really need it without doubling the cost of insurance for every insured person? I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I think there are some. And I think if Congress asks that question of the major um, organized health organizations like uh, Sutter or Cleveland Clinics or Mayo or Kaiser, that that some... Um, uh, areas of efficiency and modernization could be identified and we could create a different legal structure that would allow them to uh, flourish. And we're going to go take a quick commercial break and then we'll talk a little bit more about what Congress, Congress, this new Congress needs to do to make sure your health insurance is affordable. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back and we're going to talk about health insurance for just another minute because, you know, it's almost Christmas and wow, what a, what a bummer of a subject to have to cover, but we have to. So in addition to looking at how do we handle the pre-existing condition clause, uh, requirement. And, and it is, it's a moral imperative that we provide um, affordable care for everybody. Um, you know, but how do we get that pre-existing condition insurance without doubling the cost of insurance for everybody else? There are ways, you know, it's capitated programs. Um, that's where you pay upfront um, on the assumption um, there are, are reinsurance pools that could be used. There are all kinds of ways to make this fair and affordable and, and reduce those insurance rates for um, middle-class America. We've also got to reduce the price of prescription drugs. I mean, one, um, the R&D cost should not be borne by the American consumer. Every other country in the world that deals with American drug manufacturers gets better co costs than we do because we bear the cost of all of the research and development. And it's billions and billions of dollars to come up with a new antibiotic, for example, or a new drug to treat AFib, for example, for another example. Um, and cancer therapies cost tens of billions of dollars. But why should that cost be borne by, only by the American consumer? Because Canada, Britain, um, the EU, uh, in their negotiation with these drug companies, they don't pay their share of that cost. We bear it all. So 
And there's another thing that should happen. When a drug goes through the um, FDA approval cycle, we should look at the ratio of efficacy, in other words, how much the better that drug is, to the increase in price. When an orphan drug gets sold, um, that's an old cheap drug that somebody wants to repurpose and charge a lot of money for. We've read a lot of stories about that in the newspaper, the EpiPen case, for example. Um, then you know the FDA should be able to say your license is depend dependent on an appropriate, and I don't know what that number is. Congress would have to determine that um, ratio of um, profit to expense. And remember that the R&D expense of these drug companies, the research and development, those billions and billions of dollars that they spend, they are also deductible on their taxes during the years that they spend them. So don't feel too sorry for American drug companies. That's a place where I believe there is bipartisan agreement that something needs to be done. The problem is they are also the biggest contributors to congressional campaign uh, coffers. And so the bipartisan will may be there, but will the individual votes be there? Matt, ladies and gentlemen, is where you come in. You're the ones who are going to have to be on the phone screaming and yelling. <clears throat> Eric Swalwell think, wants to be a presidential candidate. He should be a standard bearer in this issue. My favorite solution, you know, I mean, we need to modernize Medicaid. Medicaid, having a Medicaid card does you no good if no doctor is going to treat you at the reimbursement rates that are provided for Medicaid. In Medicaid, the pool of money didn't grow. The number of people eligible grew. So you're distributing more dollars, the same number of dollars over more people, which means less care, in fact, because providers can't um, absorb the losses ad infinitum. And so we need to reform and modernize that system. It's now 50 years old. And 40% of American children are born versus, via Medicaid. So it's a big program. We, need, we use it in the opiate control um, activities that we um, undertake. So Medicaid reform is a significant uh, way to help to equalize and normalize um, the cost of insurance for you, the average middle class taxpayer. But my favorite, my favorite answer is groups. You know, let all the small businesses in California be part of one risk pool instead of hundreds and thousands of little, of smaller risk pools where if one person has uh, a major health event, a baby, or, or somebody has a heart attack or a stroke, everybody's premiums just escalate in that little bitty group because there's not enough people to distribute the risk across. So what if we had statewide small, if you're under 50 employees and nobody gets on ladders, et cetera, you're one pool. That would reduce rates, but that would require Congress to act. I believe that at some point this Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, um, uh, Chase Bank um, consortium will offer some whole new options to the healthcare consuming public. But in the interim, why don't we? Why don't we just set up a public option? Why don't we have a modern, capitated cover system that covers all the members of Congress, all of the federal bureaucracy, 
all of Medicaid, all of Obamacare eligible people, and have the power of a big group. The, the healthcare industry would compete for those dollars. And if it were good enough for Congress people, it would cover all of those pre-existing condition clauses, et cetera. And it would be much, much simpler. It would be one universal system that you could opt into and compare it to what you're getting from your health, from your em- employer-based health care. It might be better, but at least it would put everyone on the same footing um, and it would save money. And in the meantime, just because I'm going to beat a broken horse, the only pre-existing coverage that is at question that people got so scared about that that was the number one issue in the in the midterms is people who are on the Obamacare exchanges. And so if you've got employer-based insurance, there are some waiting periods under some very rare circumstances, but group coverage covers the whole group at the same rate regardless of pre-existing conditions. And the same is true of Medicare, but Medicare can and will make a patient serve up to a one-year waiting period for coverage of pre-existing conditions under certain enrollment situations. And I'm sure that's something that your member of Congress does not want you to know. And we're going to take a turn now and talk about one of my favorite subjects, climate change. 95% of the oldest Arctic ice disappeared since 1985. Here are the facts on that, folks, because you think that does not impact you? Oh, God, it does. Younger ice covers less territory and is less likely to be sustained during the summer month. The reduction in old ice and the area of ice that is covered on the poles is resulting in increased melting of the permafrost, and that's releasing more methane gas into the atmosphere and further accelerating the rate of climate change in both the heating and melting cycles. It's also causing a dislocation of the indigenous people of the northern, um, of the Arctic region, um, and ending a way of life. How does it affect you? How does it affect you? Well, since 1900... So in the last 100 and close to 20 years, the ocean has risen eight inches. And, you know, we live on the coast, right? I mean, you've heard all the jokes about California becoming an island, right? Uh, Possible, but not probable. Scientists expect the ocean to rise by another 4.3 feet, not eight inches, 4.3 feet between 2019 and the turn of the 21st century or within the lifetime of some of you listening and your children. The sea level is going to rise 4.3 feet. Wow. Does that affect me? Well, 60% of the U.S. population lives along seacoasts. So almost every major city, with the exception of Chicago and Dallas, Um, is along um, a coastal region. And so as a result, we are beginning to see coastal homes along the eight eastern coastal states fall. The the value of those homes has fallen by $14 billion in the last decade since Hurricane Sandy. And just before we go to break, let me leave you with one more fact. Additionally, ice, because it's light, absorbs the sunlight. And the ocean is much darker, so it absorbs heat 
so that the faster the ice cover melts at the poles, the warmer sea temperatures become, and that generates still more ice melt. In fact, the Pacific Ocean is now flowing underneath Alaska, and that had some con- made some contribution to the earthquake a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back to talk about a little bit more about climate change and what does it mean for you and for your children. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And I know most of you out there think, oh, you know, climate change doesn't really impact me every day. Yeah, well, it does. NOAA can tie directly the rising sea and air temperatures to the supercharged natural disasters that we've seen just this year, like Hurricane Harvey and the Camp Fire. And they say the hotter the temperatures, the higher the seas, the more devastation there will be. I believe in my lifetime that the so-called, um, you know, the, the shoreline of North Carolina and, you know, Nantucket and all of the um, offshore islands are actually going to disappear. So if you want to see the Outer Bank, I'd hurry. Because um, in 20 years, probably not going to be there. The, the United States Department of Homeland Security, you know, those are those people who, among other things, uh, manage the Secret Service and, and the Border Patrol and ICE and all of those, you know, major national security issues. Um, they, you know what they say? They say the number one threat to the homeland is climate change, is these rising seas and hotter temperatures, these bigger, devastating uh, events that FEMA just is overwhelmed by. And FEMA is a part of Homeland Security. And you know who else is really alarmed about this? The United States Department of Defense. We have 3,500 defense installations around the world, and half of them are at risk of damage or complete destruction by climate change issues like hotter temperatures and rising sea levels. And remember, the sea is going to rise 4.3 feet. Do you know that's almost all of me? I mean, my nose would barely be above the water um, if that were to come to pass. Most of my face would probably be out of the water, but not much more than that. We, we can get you a, a, a life preserver if you need, need I, one. I, I think that may be coming, Vince. I mean... In the next step, I don't expect to be here another 75 years, but a increase um, of eight inches in a um, in a century and a quarter versus an increase of 51 inches in 75 years may not just be me who needs a life preserver. <laughs> we may be sending all of your kids to school with life preservers or boating them. But you see, that would be a good thing. We paddle them to school. We would be contributing less to climate change because we wouldn't be burning fossil fuel. What do you think of that? That works. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of where we're at. Oh, there was a big, big conference, a global conference about climate change 
um, in Poland this week in which 1,000 com- uh, promises were made, but no metrics were established to determine whether those po- promises are followed through on. And and so, um, you know, everyone, it's still short-term economics and um, and politics. And at some point, we're all going to have to rise up and say, wait a minute, stop this, you know, while we still can, let's do what we can, whether it's, you know, more public, you know, transit thinking differently about how we structure cities. Because, you know, we people, we people are the mere fact that we breathe, you know, the, a lot of people say, oh, well, the carbon dioxide that we breathe out is um, in the equation to, of, stable, of stability. But that's true, except when you think about two things. Each person, each of us on the, on the planet, uh, puts about 20 metric tons of CO2 into the atmosphere today. We breathe about 156, well, 3.5 pounds per day, uh, each of us. So there were 1 million people on the entire planet in the year 1 AD. In 2020, there are 8 billion. So not only are we individually breathing more CO2 into the atmosphere, but we're building these big cities of concrete and asphalt, and we're cutting down the trees that would otherwise um, turn that carbon dioxide back into oxygen. So we, you and me, have to stop thinking about our short-term lives and start thinking about how can we create real urban villages where people can work and go to school and shop, et cetera, and not have to get in their carts. You know, we can, and, and how do we surround those villages with lots of greenery? How do we change and, and diversify um, the way in which we live so that our quality of life, you know, I love to see a, a beautiful tree in the morning, um, how our quality of life is improved, as well as minimizing our footprint and, and trying to, we can't stop climate change but we can slow it. Otherwise, it's going to slow us. And, you know, one thing that we could do, one thing that we could do is one of President Trump's legitimate um, objections to the so-called Paris Climate Agreement was that we promised to give a lot of money to, um, you know, and, and, and 200 years of grace to China and India, who are number two and number three in the emitter class, uh, we're still number one. Um, and and I think that's wrong. You know, China begged, borrowed, uh, bought, and stole plenty of modern technology from us. So, no, they don't need 200 years to catch up as though we, you know, did this terrible thing to them over the last 200 years. Um, you know, when it rains in California, it's going to rain today. Right. Well, the first time it rained, uh, we cleared out the atmosphere of the of the particles from the campfire. But you know why it usually why your car is all black and cruddy little drop marks after a rainstorm? That, ladies and gentlemen, that's Chinese coal dust. And you're breathing it in and it's coming across the Pacific Ocean and it, it helps to negate. California has done tremendous things to remove, remove its, uh, to reduce its, its carbon footprint. And you know what else? China, all that crap coming from China um, contributes to 
uh, preventing us from getting still further. So I wouldn't impose tariffs on China. I would impose hard uh, metrics for reductions in the use of coal fire plants and the reduction in their smog if they want to trade with us uh, in a free and open way. I wouldn't use tariffs. I'd use the more, uh, because they one, they won't work. Uh, tariff is a tax on you and me um, it, because it all gets passed along. Um, and climate change is a serious risk to everyone, probably not to many of you or me or even Vince, but certainly to our children, um, whether or not this planet can sustain them. So on that happy note, on that happy note, um, I, I really think that what we should do is say it's not tariffs, guys. We're going we're gonna to stop or reduce trading with China and to some extent with India until you get your emissions problem under control. More solar, more water, more conservation, and your results had better be measurable. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little politics. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. You know, if you've got something to add on ideas about how to solve some of these problems, we want to hear from you. How would you be able to um, make those emission standards changes on China binding? Like, I mean, you, you, you threaten to not trade with them, but we're just as reliant on them as they are on us, right? It's a two-way street. Do we really have enough leverage? Yeah, we really do have enough leverage. We won't have that leverage for um, forever if we don't use it wisely now. But we we have that leverage. Um, they know they're choking on their smog. Um, this could be a different way to approach their 2025 goals. Um, you know, this could become a race to see who can build the best climate control um you know, power generation, next generation power. I mean, just as they're trying to challenge us using technology they stole from us um, in in the uh, fifth generation in, uh, internet, uh, I think we could have a meaningful two-way um, healthy competition in terms of how we would expand uh, the solar footprint, et cetera. Plus, the Chinese know that their going their healthcare costs are skyrocketing because of the amount of illness and and um pollution that is caused by their uh heavy dependence on coal and and yes we could measure the amount of let's say uh blinding fog smog in uh Beijing or in Shanghai or in the industrial zone above Hong Kong and and we would we would see as they were making that transition, we would see a reduction. Um, we'd see some days when the sky was clear, and we would see a reduction in the actual actual particulate matter in the environment. I, I mean, I I, I don't want to be Mary Poppins, but I I think that a a positive um, approach to um, 
a free trading society, which is based on you know the use of intellectual property uh, to, to benefit everyone, uh, would be a, a healthier approach. I mean, the, the the Chinese government is not immune to um, the influences of climate change any more than we are. And they've got a lot more to clean up. I mean, we've done, this country's really done a remarkably good job of cleaning up. The problem is we have this huge population. And oh, by the way, all of those people I listened in on an Anna Eschew um, town hall and, and all these people who are beating their chests in Los Gatos and Saratoga and so forth, um, about climate change and, and, you know, how far California is ahead and climate change and blah, 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 and those, you know, Washington doesn't get it, which I agree, um, is most of those people drive SUVs. So, you know, um, the electric car industry. Um, I don't know about autonomous. I'm, I'm very skeptical of autonomous, but I believe we could move to, we got to find a way, okay, to operate um uh, cars that do not drive on uh, gasoline that go more than 100 miles on a charge and don't cost as much as a Tesla, you know. And by the way, the lithium batteries that run those cars today are extremely toxic to the environment. So there are a bunch of challenges. And yes, I think we and the Chinese could actually, if we work together, we would mutually benefit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But when you talk about China, China knows that they're polluting the air. Are you really talking about the Chinese government? Because are, isn't there like very strict censorship there? Like, do do you think the citizens? I mean, people aren't dumb. They like I've seen plenty of Chinese people with the with the face masks and stuff. They they know there's pollution out there. But uh, there's like two billion people there. Do you think all of them? know that they're being exposed to this um those that live in the big cities do as you say they wear those masks and so forth they try to drive through that horrible smog have you ever seen a picture of what beijing looks like on a on a uh on a good day or a bad day you know during the olympics that they had to close down all the factories because they didn't want the world to see the dirty air and they are the greatest the nation's biggest the world's biggest user of coal so uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you can I, I believe you catch more uh, flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Um, I, I think that that a a an approach that says, you know, you're damaging our environment. You know, we want to work with you. And by the way, they are the largest manufacturer of solar panels in the world. OK, so your goods, China, are going to get a little more expensive. We're going to have a more level playing field. So that the old Corning factory that Eli um, Musk, Elon Musk has turned into a solar panel factory in upstate New York, the the higher the wages would be, you know, the cost of the, those materials would be more comparable. So that China would develop um, would use a lot more of its solar panels for its own consumption could sell a lot to India. India is the biggest coal burner in the world, and it doesn't need to be. So, um, you know, I, I think there are bunches of things that that we could do, that we could attempt, but it would require that the president of the United States actually 
take a briefing from NOAA and actually internalize some of these risks that seem so apparent based on the numbers. And and from there, because, yeah, the Chinese people, the Chinese people know what the Chinese government wants them to know, but they know they can see what they're breathing. They know that they can't take fish out of those rivers. You know, we're not we're not um, they're not blind. They may be censored, but they're not blind. So and the Chinese government is fearful of that. Interesting article in in The Economist, and we'll talk about that on another Sunday, um, about uh, what lies ahead for China and the comparison and and the the fragility in the Chinese economy. So that is, um, and so I did want to spend a couple minutes um, on a couple of other points. You all saw the horrible, horrible fact that a child, um, a migrant child died in um, within a few hours in um, Border Patrol um, custody. And, and I think that's an incredible tragedy. It, it's just horrible, and it's unfortunate that it happened. Um, but I want you to remember that 1.5 million children in the United States are homeless on any given day. That 10%, that 10% of our children you know, at some time in their academic career will be homeless. And I don't hear anybody, anybody at local, state, or federal level who's worrying about how do we get those children out of the cold, off the streets, and into stable housing. And I think that's a crime. That should be Congress's most important responsibility, as well as the legislature and every city council. City council. And and Vince is trying to get my attention here. Yeah, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk to, to Vic. Vic, who, who's called in. Okay. Whoops, I mean Nick. Nick's calling in. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we've got Nick on the line. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Miss Cordy. How are you, ma'am? I'm fine, and you? I'm well, thank you. I love your show, by the way. It's a great show. Oh, thank you. I learn a lot from it. So. Thank you. That is the objective. I really do want you. <laughs> I really do want you to get some information instead of talking points. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny. I spent most of my life either inside a microscope or outside a microscope, and tend to have ignored a lot of the things I should have paid more attention to. So it helps this old nerd here. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad to be of help. So what can I help you with this morning? <laughs> so my question is this. Do you think that the data, which is reported for uh, the climate change uh, hypothesis, is accurate, first of all? And do you think that it is balanced in terms of the, hy- the hypothesis of well, it's positive one way and negative the other way. Because I pulled some of the data and kind of went through it myself. I, I think that all that gets reported is the worst possible phenomenon. It's as if the confidence, the confidence level, the deviation above it, is always reported at the tip top of it, right? Mm-hmm. Never that, oh, by the way, the uh, deviation around the temperature mean is actually larger than, larger than the uh, error in measurement. So do you think that the, we can make public policy off it? Well, here's, here's what I think. Because remember, you know, we have a really dynamic economy. So 
you know, the way that I put it is, um, you know, I've spent a career in, I, I simplify it by saying, in fixing broken companies, okay? And so when I talk to a CEO, I have to point, to paint the gloomiest picture. I have to tell him what the worst that could happen is. I want you to know how appreciative most of those CEOs are when you finish the project and the result is twice as good as what they expected. Now, that means they're only 50% better, but it's not the worst case. And there's a benefit. They make more money. um, They have happier employees. They have better products. I think you can use that analogy, and you being a scientist will understand this, um, in the climate change scenario. So am I, am I sure that every number is exactly right? No, uh, because no NOAA scientist can know exactly that it's going to be 4.3 feet that, uh, of, of ocean rise between uh, next year and the year 2100. And guess what? None of them will be here to be held accountable for that. So but do I believe that it's possible that the Outer Banks will disappear in that time uh, or that Houston Harbor will be a whole lot bigger uh, or the Gulf of Mexico will be altered by the loss of, um, of uh, the sand dunes unless there are there's strong remediation? I believe all of that is possible. And if we do the constructive things to fix those burns and, you know, uh, mitigate the disaster on the outer islands and not let people build summer homes there, et cetera, that are going to be destroyed by hurricanes, that that we can mitigate what could happen. And wouldn't that be good news? And it is not what the news presents. The news, that is, this makes perfect sense to me. It's the same as I do an audit for the FDA. I mm-hmm. agree completely what you're saying. They report the absolute worst. The IPCC's endpoints, which I don't know if they're adjudicated or not, have never, have never reached one. That continues to erode any type of confidence that uh, the population, which I know is an issue with science, but just, you know, the news says, well, you didn't, make, you didn't meet three of your points. How can we trust you? They can report this just like you just did. That, you know, the worst case scenario is this, right? We should be doing, using these types of technologies and innovations, like you said, to mitigate the potential risk. It can't hurt it. And if it turns out to be wrong, we're just better off for it. That's how it should be reported. And it's not reported like you just did. I I understand that. I understand that. And that, Nick, is why I do this show. Because <laughs> <laughs> I used to do a lot of, of um, press work for candidates and stuff, um, you know, as a volunteer. And I found that the reporters who come to interview you know nothing. And so that's kind of the genesis of this show is I think the better that you inform voters, the smarter. We're, we're a relatively intelligent population that if you give us good choices and real information as a people, we're going to do the right thing. And you know what? We're going to have a flourishing society that for everyone and an incredibly um, successful economy. And, and instead, because we listen to our politicians, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah. You're very kind to, to take time to answer. You have a keen and agile mind. I love listening to you. and You've helped me to look at things a lot different. So I do oh, appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we'll talk next year. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. Take care of yourself. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. And so we've got about one minute left, and so I'm going to give you a closing thought 
out of my political section. Um, you know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pinch myself now because I'm about to say I'm happy that Nancy Pelosi is gonna get the the votes together to be the Speaker of the House. And the reason I'm happy about that is because otherwise, um, if we don't have a wise uh, older person at the helm, we're going to have nothing but investigations and none of the issues, all of which are pertinent, that Nick and I just Nick and I just talked about, none of that will get done. So, we, you know... We, I, I was going to talk about a wonderful little book called Impeachment, but you can hold that thought for just before New Year, for just before New Year. Have a merry, merry Christmas, because you'll get music next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.